2: This is a CBC podcast.
3: Hi, I'm Pia Chattopadhyay. Welcome to the Sunday Magazine podcast, featuring the stories we first brought you on the last day of 2023, Sunday, December 31st, on CBC Radio. War, foreign interference claims big beefs with big powers. 2023's been a doozy for Canada on the world stage. First up, what our country should learn from the year that was as we go forward into an uncertain future. After that, our Sunday documentary ponders what the future may hold for one of the world's largest entertainment companies as Disney caps off its 100-year anniversary. Later on, we will burrow into the animal kingdom with some of our favorite stories all about our feathery and furry friends. That's all starting right now on the Sunday Magazine podcast. As we look back at 2023, there is no doubt this year will be remembered as one defined by conflict and volatility. From Israel and Hamas to Russia's ongoing war in Ukraine, the effects of international instability continue to ripple right across the globe. And here in Canada, relations with two major world powers, India and China, have been deeply challenged. So How should we make sense of a shifting world order and Canada's role within it? Arif Lalani is a senior advisor at Strategy Corps, that is a government affairs and consulting advisory firm. He is also a former Canadian ambassador to several countries, including Jordan, Iraq and Afghanistan. Basma Mamani is a professor of political science at the University of Waterloo. I spoke with Arif and Basma a few days ago. Basma, when you lean back and sort of look at the year that was, 2023, how would you characterize the year in global affairs?
4: Horrible. <laughs> um, I think it was really a, a momentous year. And unfortunately, I think it's a year that we're going to be studying as academics for a very long time for many, many different reasons. But I think it's also a year the West lost the rest, particularly the United States. And it's claim to uphold the liberal international order. I think there are many things that happened this year that will continue to reverberate, uh, which we'll talk about, but I would say, in, really in one word, just a horrible year.
5: Hmm.
3: Arif, what themes stand out for you? And do you have a word of, as well?
0: Well, well, I think transition. I, I think it was a terrible year for the West uh, and much of the world, but it really reflected the continuing transition of economic and, and I think global power to Asia, and Eurasia. So I, I think it is a little bit the year that maybe Biden lost the world uh, in a series of decisions. But I also think, depending on where you are in the world, if you're in Asia, it actually looks a lot more optimistic than it does if you're sitting in Canada.
3: So let's talk about Canada. Uh, that's the lens we're kind of going to use through this whole conversation. But let's just, first of all, Arif, talk about how specifically you think Canada made its global mark this year.
0: Well, I think it made its global mark by being, uh, frankly, disconnected. You know, it's a world in which there are not just two camps anymore. You can't hide behind organizations that you feel comfortable with. So in a world of what I call new geography, Canada is struggling to get along with uh, the major countries that matter in that new geography, right? It was a year in which relationship with China, uh, again, was in turmoil really problematic uh, relationship now with India. So I think Canada seems a little bit alone in a world where you need to get along with people.
3: And for you, Besma, how how did you see Canada sort of broadly on the global stage Mm -hmm. this year?
4: Canada's really generally tried to play, for lack of a better word, a moderate role on the international stage and really be that voice that supported internationalism and multilateralism. It's really difficult to do that today in a world that is highly polarized where countries including the united states i think will continue to become more polarized more extreme it's a really lonely voice and i think we are very much alone in the world in that way and i don't know if we can reclaim it because the world has changed Uh, i think we need to adjust ourselves to this changing world we don't have the same uh, kinds of like-minded people And countries to ally with. Uh, And I think the challenge, unfortunately, is that the world needs more multilateralism and more internationalism. But I just don't think that the world is prepared for that.
3: Arif mentioned Canada's relations with India. So let's dig more into that. The Globe and Mail is reporting that the RCMP is expected to make arrests related to the killing of Hardip Singh Nijjar, the, the Canadian Sikh separatist activist who was killed in Surrey, British Columbia. In September, Reef Justin Trudeau made a very public accusation that the Indian government was involved. The prime minister received a lot of criticism for that. If there are arrests, does this change how you view the Canadian government and how it handled all this?
0: Well, I I think there's a lesson here in how the U.S. government handled this and how the Canadian government handled it. And if you look at how the U.S. did it, it led with a legal process. There was an investigation, there were indictments, and there was a very public transparency about the evidence it had. Canada, on the other hand, led with a very political process, starting with the prime minister rising in parliament, making some accusations, and then silence on the Canadian side. And I think the result is the Americans have a relationship with India that they're managing. Canada, at the moment, uh, has a relationship with India which is dysfunctional. Now, I know that America's more powerful than Canada, but precisely all the more reason that Canada maybe should have navigated this more carefully and trying to preserve the relationship while still pursuing our very legitimate interests.
3: Mm. Best, if I recall correctly, we had you both on when this accusation was put forth in the House of Commons. And I think, if I remember correctly, you thought the Prime Minister at the time um, making that move, standing up the House of Commons, was an OK move. So I'm wondering how you sort of see this now at the end of the year.
4: I mean, I, I did think it was an OK move, but probably not a smart move in the sense that, you know, I, I didn't have doubt that there was a weight to the accusation. And in fact, really what I would point out is that India uh, under the BJP's Modi is really quintessential character of what we're going to see on the rise globally today. And you have to understand that countries like India and, and BJP's Modi really do feel like might is right. And so you can see even the rhetoric after all of this, yes, there was at the official level denial, but more importantly, the chatter, if you will, was often was, well, you know, great powers go after their perceived terrorists. So why can't we? We're a great power. I mean, that was the conversation, if you will, in the media um, ecosystem uh, throughout India, which really is reflective of this idea that we are powerful, we are rising nation states. And yes, we are going to behave like a country that sees its national interest as as primary objective, and and that may come at the cost of civil liberties of of others, and and terrorists don't have a right to that. I think that kind of might is right is unfortunately the wave of the future. If we look at all of the various elections that are happening, this is a very busy year in 2024, will be the highest amount of elections we've had in a very long time. We're gonna see more polarization bring into power charismatic, very populist nationalist leaders um, who will indeed argue this trend and I think this is where we are going to continue to butt heads because you know due process and the rule of law and the liberal international order um, you know it's being gutted from within by many countries including the United States but on top of that uh, I think many countries think it's hollow it's it's selective in our use of when we want to abide by those rules and so uh, they're just going to circumvent it. And I think this is the, the challenge is we cannot, and I think where Trudeau failed is actually making such a big, big public display of it. Uh, it's not the righteousness of it. It's the 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 tactic, if you will.
3: Is there an argument to be made, and I'd like to hear from both of you, Bessman, I'll start with you, that Canada should kind of use its might. In other words, that we should have the prime minister stand up and defend our democratic values and what we find acceptable on Canadian soil.
4: So I agree uh, that we should always be defending our national interests, uh, and that the very fact of uh, you know extrajudicial assassination is wrong. Period, uh, regardless of who the individual is. But the reality is, Canada is not that strong. I mean, I think we can be very proud of our G7 status, but we're there because someone wants us there, i.e. the United States. We are not that powerful as a nation state. We don't have that much might. And I think leaning on our rhetoric to try to compensate for that is not going to help. Uh, I think we need to understand our positionality in the international system, which is, on the whole, you know, relatively weak. I'm not saying we're insignificant. But it is not a, we are not a powerful army, military, economy on all scales. You know, we are middle power and that's being gracious. So I think we need to be careful about not you know, believing our own mantra of punching above our weight, because then I think we tend to exaggerate our, our power. And then I think we are surprised when things kind of bite us.
3: Okay, so Reef, I want you in on this one as well. I, I, to to sort of paraphrase Basman, I, I don't think it's a fair characterization what she's saying, but she is saying, be a little bit more, um, you know, stereotypically Canadian, be the nice guy, we don't have much power.
0: Well, I, I, look, I, I think we do have a degree of power. Uh, I think we do have levers with India. I just think we've mismanaged them. Hmm. Again, I go back to the Americans who actually could have started with President Biden and could have tried to lecture India because they're more powerful, but interestingly, they didn't. Because the message they sent is, you know, we value the relationship with India. Uh, However, we have this very serious issue which we're gonna treat very seriously, but it's not going to start with the president uh, making a public accusation. We're going to let our legal and investigative authorities conduct their work. And President Biden, you know, it has been reported, raised this issue with Prime Minister Modi. But they also realized that they have to preserve the relationship. And so the Americans were able to navigate what I call being diplomatically and intellectually uncomfortable. And Canada has to learn that, especially as a weaker power, that in today's world, Uh, you're going to have to navigate much more carefully. You have to stand up for your principles, but there are lots of ways to do it. And I think there were different scenarios that the Canadian government could have chosen a couple of months ago.
3: Okay, the other um, very complicated relationship Canada has on the world stage is uh, with China. Allegations that China meddled in our federal elections dominated the news. Much of 2023, this comes um, on top of the last couple of years being very difficult uh, between our two countries. There will be uh, the inquiry into foreign interference is going to begin its hearings in the new year. The Chinese embassy, of course, has denied all the allegations of meddling in our affairs. But Besma, because this year has come on top of the past couple of years of difficult relations with China, how does Canada or how should Canada navigate these diplomatic waters?
4: Well, much like with India, I think we need to be cognizant of our positionality. You know, Chinese foreign interference is on the rise uh, whether through disinformation or through direct meddling Mm. and i think it's emblematic of yet again nationalist populist leaders like president xi who's consolidated power into his third term now very very uncharacteristic for china and uh, is increasingly becoming more and more authoritarian at home and there's a strong sense of the west is after china and so we are stuck in this i think unfortunate situation partly because of our proximity to the United States uh, and and Biden's policies, which have been very, um, I think, seen within Chinese political class as being an attempt to thwart their technological and economic development, we are caught in the middle. And I think we need to be cognizant of that. Uh, we are seen as inseparable from the United States in the eyes of the Chinese. So it's going to become more difficult for us, I think, to navigate this relationship. But, and more importantly, we cannot completely decouple from China. It is virtually impossible to do. And so that is going to be, I think, the thorniest relationship. And with our you know, wonderful Chinese Canadian diaspora community here, also a source of tension and great challenge because they are suffering. Um, themselves more than anybody at the hands of the Chinese autocratic regime in the way that they're being pressured um, and being targeted. So it is, I think, a top priority for us, not just internationally, but also domestically as well.
3: All right, let's um, move to the conflict that's taken up so much of the world's attention in recent months, the Israel-Hamas war. And let me just put a couple things forth. Canada co-signed a joint statement with Australia and New Zealand a couple weeks ago calling for a sustainable ceasefire. And then we voted in favor of a non-binding UN resolution demanding an immediate humanitarian ceasefire in Gaza, but our government stopped short of committing to sanctions on violence by Israeli settlers. Besma, at the end of the year, what is your read on Canada's positioning at this stage in this conflict?
4: I mean, where it started was really trying to be supportive of Israel Uh, unconditionally. Um, And then the humanitarian catastrophe uh, with what even Biden himself called indiscriminate bombing became much too much to bear. And I think what we've seen is Canada try to, and and maybe perhaps working with allies because there is strength in doing so, um, putting forward a common vote. I think the challenge of course is it is a crisis beyond any proportion we've ever seen the death toll. The, the the injured, the, the maimed, the, the destruction, the, the number of journalists killed. I mean, it really is exceeding all other records on any humanitarian measure. And so I think what we're seeing today is the Canadian government really try to play a delicate dance of wanting to be supportive of Israel, but increasingly becoming more difficult. And it doesn't help that uh, Netanyahu himself has made it very clear he sees no future for a two-state solution. And that is the essence of what we have been hanging on to for so long, that Canada is supporting of a two-state solution. Well, what do you do when the existing uh, incumbent Israeli government is absolutely not in support of that? And dare I say, even suggesting, uh, quote-unquote, you know voluntary displacement of, of Palestinians, um, into Egypt, which has become more and more a mainstay opinion uh, throughout uh, the Israeli political establishment, this is this is frightening, and I think Canada is having a very difficult time trying to square the circle of maintaining an alliance with the Israelis.
3: And Arif, you know, you are a former Canadian ambassador um, to Jordan, to Afghanistan, um, to Iraq. So when you look, and I know Afghanistan is not in the Middle East, but when you look at the conflict in the Middle East, specifically this war between Israel and Hamas, how do you see it through a Canadian lens?
0: You know, it's a difficult issue for, for Canada to pronounce itself on. But I think what you've seen in the last two months is countries like Canada Um, stated their support for Israel and Israel's right to defend itself. But these were based on other premises also holding true. That was within a framework in which there was a principle that everybody involved agreed on a two-state solution. What you're seeing now is that 20,000 deaths later, uh, I think it's very hard for Israelis to see how they're going to be more secure. So they're looking at what are the outcomes here of the Netanyahu government's uh, military operation. And second, you are seeing a very clear statement from the Prime Minister of Israel uh, that he does not believe in a two-state solution. So what does he believe in and uh, what is there for, for others to support or not support? So I think in 2024, a real question is going to be what does Israel want and what do Israelis want? And in some ways, only Israelis can decide that And they're going to have to go through that is, you know, what is going to guarantee Israeli security in the long term? Because right now, it's unclear how the military operation is going to do that. And second, what are Israelis going to do about the very important, significant regional peace agreements that they have worked on? It's very hard to see how Israel can be secure if it does not take into account the interests of the countries. Uh, with whom it has peace
3: agreements. Last year, at this time, if I was talking to the both of you, we would spend um, a lot of time talking about the war. In Ukraine, and we are going to talk about it, um, but somewhat more briefly, I think, than maybe it deserves. We have seen um, both parts of Europe and the United States have divisions within their own citizenry, and also politically, um, about what to do about this war, how to finance Ukraine, and to what level. Arif, as that conflict approaches a two-year mark, you've said, we need to find some kind of political solution to that conflict. What more Should Canada do? We have a large Ukrainian diaspora. We brought in quite a few Ukrainians in the last couple of years. What should we be doing? What's our role here?
0: I'm not sure there's more that Canada can do that would be decisive. Uh, I think Canada should continue to support Ukraine. Canada will continue to provide military and other support. But just as with Israel, I think there's going to be a question here in 2024 about what can Ukraine accept? And I think Canada just needs to continue to stand where it has uh, stood the challenge for Canada and for other Western governments is they are running uh, out of ammunition and frankly, out of some political will to continue to fund this war. That is, I think, going to be a really difficult proposition in 2024. And that's clearly going to be one of the things that will be impacted uh, in in the American elections uh, next year.
3: And Bessma, what do you think Canada should be doing when it comes to uh, Russia's war in Ukraine?
4: Well, it's devastating, of course, because, you know, I think uh, Putin is, of course, uh, really enjoying this moment, uh, seeing the world aflame, um, getting time to wait till Trump returns. Clearly, there is, I think, a lot of fatigue uh, in Washington. And um, we do have a stalemate. I think it's an uncomfortable word, word because no one wants to see the continued occupation of the Donbass and Crimea. But the reality is there is a stalemate. Uh, Yes, we may have been late in delivering lots of equipment to Ukrainians who have a lot more will to fight. But the reality is this is a costly war for the West. And I think there is going to be a push on Ukraine to be more realistic. Um, And that is unfortunate uh, because I think it's uh, a testament to just how much uh, I think the world has become exhausted with international conflict. Um, even though it's really being paid for by the civilians on the ground.
0: And Pia, could could I just jump in with another point on this? And the point I want to make is the interconnectedness of all of these uh, conflicts that we're seeing in, in, in the world. You know, you just saw two weeks ago the rehabilitation of Putin in the Middle East being received in the United Arab Emirates and then in Saudi Arabia with full state honours. That's significant, and that's on the heels of what I think is a sense that uh, Western powers were not listening uh, to countries in the Middle East in the Gaza-Israel conflict. You're seeing uh, the Western countries win votes at the UN, but at the same time, Moscow is now earning more revenue from oil than it did before its invasion of Ukraine. Hmm. So there's a reflection here of, you know, the international mechanisms that the West has built and controlled, no longer being able to deliver the outcomes. We take comfort in votes at the UN, but then on the ground, the reality is very different.
3: And so let's round back to kind of where we started, which is looking at, you know, as Arif, you just said, look, everything's connected, all all these conflicts. I like to style them off and ask you guys questions to dissect them, but they are there are through lines to them. So... I think both of you are suggesting that Canada needs to somewhat redraw or rethink its foreign policy playbook in preparation for what's to come and has misstepped in the past year. So, Besma, what what should it redraw? How should our government uh, approach the world stage in the coming year?
4: Quietly. um, I think choosing issues where we can be successful. Uh, Boutique issues. um, You know, we're not going to... Solve world hunger, but we're maybe able to advance, you know, very specific niche issues, uh, and I think pursue that technocratically at the civil service level. I think be be more humble, understanding our capabilities are limited. Um, work quietly but aggressively to advance those goals and aims. Arif.
0: Well, I'm going to take a slightly different tack. Uh, one, I do think that the beginning of a, of a different policy was started by Minister Jolie in her speech in which she talked about a pragmatic diplomacy. Second, I, I think Canada actually has muscle to flex, but we don't act like we actually have levers in today's world. You know, we are one of the most resource-rich countries in the world in terms of oil and uh, natural gas, in terms of uh, rare earth minerals, in terms of tech and on artificial intelligence these are all places where canada actually has heft but it needs to behave like it is in fact a a global power and that means real personal diplomacy with leaders around the world i think you have to also be able to get your governance in order at home uh, which is a problem for western countries at the moment and third i think the challenges that are global that we care about like artificial intelligence, like environment and climate change, and immigration is gonna increasingly require a relationship with uh, business and the private sector to help solve some of these problems and to manage. So what I think 2024 is gonna boil down to for Canada is can we take a real stab at shaping the global operating environment for our citizens, and for our businesses.
3: Okay, we'll have to leave it there. Um, Appreciate uh, both of you so much and your smarts. Thank you for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. Arif Lalani is a senior advisor at Strategy Corps and a former Canadian ambassador. Bespa Momani is a professor of political science at the University of Waterloo. I spoke with both of them a few days ago. You're listening to the Sunday Magazine Podcast. I'm Pia Chattopadhyay. Well, as we close out 2023, we're going to look back on one of the biggest entertainment stories of the year. Sort of. Because this year, the world's biggest entertainment company, Disney, turned 100 years old. Our producer, Pete Mitten, has been working on a story about it. He's here with me now. Hi, Pete.
6: Hi, Pia. Happy almost New Year to you.
3: I think we call this, um, we have a term for it, it's uh, Happy New
6: Year's Eve. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know, morning time feels like... (laughs) Almost New Year, not New Year's Eve, but fair. Happy New Year's Eve. Uh, So tell me, Pia, what is your relationship with Disney?
3: Oof, that seems like a loaded question. Uh, What is my relationship? Listen, I think, um, hmm, you know, Disney's ubiquitous. Like everyone has a relationship with Disney, whether you want one or not, right? You're in this relationship, whether you want it or not. I guess for me, where my head's sort of going to is... um, it was part of the cultural learnings as a kid of immigrants, right? So my parents came over in the late 60s. I was born in the 70s. My sister and I growing up in the prairies with my parents. And Disney was kind of one of these elements that came into our lives, whether it be through Mickey and Minnie or whatever movies were on at the time through Disney, that, I don't know, felt, made us feel, quote unquote, Canadian, North American, whatever part of a world community. So I'd, I'd sort of start there and then I'm kind of trying to fast forward, like, now that I have kids. And I hate to admit this, and I, I, I don't know why I should hate this, Pete, but I I love Disney. I love everything. I love the movies. Huh. I love going to Disney World. I, You know, when I'm standing in line, I'm like, ugh, I hate standing in line. Um, I, 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 I want to be the person who hates it in right. some weird ways. Because maybe I feel gullible to, to love it so much. Like, I've been had. Or maybe I should just chill out and say, you know what? It's kind of a beautiful thing.
6: Well, it's nice to have it as a beautiful thing in your life. And I'll admit, to me, that's always been, that Disney fandom, that Disney love has always been a bit of a mystery to me. Hmm. I mean, I grew up, the cartoons were on TV, I definitely have an affinity for Goofy, love that guy, but <laughs> but my house, we didn't have the merchandise, we didn't have the bed sheets or the toys, really, and critically, we didn't go to Disney World. When I was a little kid, my parents told us that Disney World was closed on March break.
3: Oh, wow. Because, you see,
6: too many people would go otherwise. Mr. and
3: Mrs. Mitten, that was a hard (laughs) lie.
6: And I think I missed a critical window of Disney love there. But now I see my own kids just instant bond with Mickey and Minnie. And as I see the stories about Disney turning 100 in the business pages, I wanted to try to get at what is the secret that's made this company bigger than an entertainment company, bigger than a cultural phenomenon, bigger than anything we really have a word for in the past hundred years. So,
3: This is kind of like trying to unpack the secret sauce of Taylor Swift. I don't know that you'll come up with the answer, but I I look forward to hearing where you sort of go with this, Pete. So in that vein, who'd you talk to to try and unpack this mystery?
6: A lot of experts and people who have written about Disney, but I started with someone who's, I think, an even bigger Disney fan than you are. Hmm.
7: I'm hoping to get a Disney Christmas tree done. I actually have all the ornaments. I just have to get another tree. So we're going to have our own Disney Christmas tree at some point.
6: This is Marlene Morris, a conference coordinator at the University of Guelph and a mom of two teenagers. And it's safe to say she loves Disney. I
7: love Disney. (laughs) We've been saving for our next trip for, I think it'll be two and a half years. And we're actually trying to save for California. We're so excited.
6: Disneyland, the original theme park in California, may still be on her bucket list. But how many times have she and her family been to Disney World in Florida?
7: Um, So we've gone to Florida sometimes without going to Disney, which makes me very sad. I remember traveling past the Disney signs. I did not like that. So we've been six times. And then we've been on two Disney cruises.
6: Okay, so Marlene and her family may be Disney super fans. But in a way, we're all living in Disney's world today. It's hard to put into words just how big a deal the world's biggest entertainment company has become in its century of shaping the culture.
8: Perhaps the most recognizable name on the entire planet. The
5: Walt Disney Company at 100 years now owns so much intellectual property that they own many, if not most, of our modern mythologies.
2: It's so embedded in the culture of the world that you don't even realize how much the impact is.
6: Which makes it all the more shocking that, as it rings in a century, all is not magical, in the Magic Kingdom.
2: As a business, Disney is struggling, to be quite candid. This is Brooks Barnes. I'm a staff writer at the New York Times. I cover the entertainment business. Cable television has been the financial engine for the company for 20 years. That's no longer the case. Streaming is the future, but it's still losing money.
6: Its own streaming service, Disney Plus, has been up and running for a few years now, but it hasn't managed to bridge the gap.
2: It's struggling to figure out where the future of entertainment is going.
6: Which puts it in the same boat as many other media companies today. But Disney isn't other media companies. It hasn't just won the race to be the biggest,
2: richest company in entertainment. It's won another race, too. That race to dominate the imagination.
6: And that may be the much more interesting question. Forget Disney's corporate share price. As it enters its second century in a very different world than it was born in in 1923, can it defend the kingdom it's built in the global imagination? To answer that, let's go back to the beginning.
2: Walt Disney himself, it seems weird just to even say his name. <laughs> the real person, right? Um, but he, he, there was this real focus on how did they do that?
6: as in technological marvels that make you say, how'd they do that? And that begins with the first Mickey Mouse cartoon from 1928. Steamboat Willie didn't just introduce perhaps the world's most recognizable cartoon character. It was the first animation to sync up sound and image. A technological breakthrough at the time and those marvels continued through Disney's first feature-length animation, Snow White and the Seven Dwarves.
9: I'm wishing, I'm wishing, for the one I love.
8: Um, I think the, the real magic of, of Disney, especially at the beginning, was that they were not afraid to take risks and and risk-taking really was, like, in their DNA. I mean, Snow White was a movie that every single person said would fail and was a ridiculous idea, because you have to remember, at the time, you know, animated features weren't a thing.
6: Barry Levitt is a Canadian film critic and writer who specializes in Disney.
8: You know, you'd get an animated short for, for maybe 10 minutes before a movie starts, like, a, you know, a live-action movie, and no one thought uh, that animation had any future or really any, any right to be, you know, feature-length.
6: But Disney advanced the art form. The studio pioneered the so-called multi-plane camera. This was another technological breakthrough, one that allowed Disney to film multiple moving layers of artworks, creating that captivating sense of depth in their films.
8: Snow White was really the ultimate risk uh, all the way back in 1937. And when that film came out, obviously, if you adjust for inflation, it's still in like, the top 10 all-time box office.
6: But Disney's next move was his boldest, creating a place
2: in the real world where people could touch what they'd seen on the screen. The theme parks are often overlooked, and that is really the secret. You know, when you're a little kid and you go to Disneyland, like, it blows the sprockets off your brain. <laughs> you're not physically able to to comprehend that, I don't think. And there's just something about that that creates this lifelong bond.
6: As you might expect, Marlene Morris has warm and vivid memories of her first trip to a Disney park.
7: Our first uh, Disney trip was in 1986, and I was in grade 5. We loaded up in a vintage brown station wagon. Disney World was celebrating their 15th year in operation, and I still remember the theme song. I actually sang it for my family the other day, which they all gave me very strange looks.
6: Now, nearly 30 years later, Marlene's still going to Disney World, even with her teenaged kids.
7: And I was watching some of the other families and reminiscing about when my children were that age and having the strollers and and how much work it was. And I have to say, it wasn't quite as exhausting with teenagers.
6: For Brooks Barnes, this is a major part of Disney's secret to longevity.
2: What that does is create this generational machine where... Children who visited in the 50s brought back their families when they grew up, you know, and and that's continued on.
6: And that generational machine doesn't just generate warm memories and merchandising opportunities. It can create something even bigger in people's lives.
5: Going to the parks to celebrate a special occasion or seeing your kids grow up as they get taller and taller compared with the castle That makes meaning in people's lives, and everyone craves meaning.
6: Jody Eichler-Levine is a professor of religion at Lehigh University in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, and she studies Disney.
5: I actually think that Disney is just like Burning Man and sports and every other site of modern meaning-making that has become really important for humans.
6: Which explains why... Disney is investing heavily in those parks. Here's Brooks Barnes.
2: Uh, one of the things that they just announced is $60 billion, billion with a B, in spending a lot of that overseas, where the parks like Shanghai Disneyland is, is about 10 years old. So if you think about what in 50 years might that behold for that market, that generational pull, it's pretty mind-blowing.
6: Disney does face an interesting problem today, though. It's simply harder to blow kids' minds now than it was in 1986, on Marlene's first trip, or in 1955, when the first park opened. Childhood itself is changing.
2: You know, it's this interesting question about can Disney keep us entertained at its parks, especially children? You know, forever and ever, the animatronic robots at It's a Small World or Pirates of the Caribbean you know, if you were young enough, it seemed real, right? As technology and and just you know, kids are savvier than ever. The age at which that those set pieces seem real is lower and lower.
6: Still, though, when that Disney magic hits, it has a special kind of power. Here's Jody Eichler Levine.
5: What Disney calls magic. I think is very close to religion. I kind of joke it's every religion everywhere all at once. And what we see in the ways that people are making sense of their lives and their identity through the films is real.
6: That's something Henry Giroux, a professor of education at McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario, would agree with, in a way.
10: Disney is iconic. It's godlike. Disney is like a religious cult.
6: Giroux got interested in Disney after seeing his own kids watching the movies. And he's come to see it as this massive corporation that very cleverly hides behind what he calls a cloak of innocence. All the while pushing a very consumerist message on kids.
10: Because, you know, first and foremost, Disney's a corporation. You know, fantasy becomes a market strategy. It harnesses the imagination, the name of consumerism. It's a $174 billion company.
6: Speaking ill of Mickey, though, is not always a popular message, as Henry Giroux found when he started giving lectures on the topic.
10: And honestly, people would stand up, Peter, in the audience, and they would begin. They'd say, I love Disney. Disney's my family. Disney holds my family together. They would open their shirts, the men, and they would have a huge... Uh, tattoos of Mickey Mouse.
6: And as for those parks?
10: Everything is pre-planned. You don't have to think. You go to Disneyland or Disney World, and there are spots where you can take pictures. You're maneuvered around. I mean, it's a world of utter regulation steeped in nostalgia and steeped in a relatively false celebration of what's best for children.
6: Which brings us to another secret of Disney's Century of Success... It's promise of a family-friendly escape from reality and reality's controversies. Or at least it's always appeared to offer that. Here's Brooks Barnes.
2: Disney forever and ever and ever and ever has really tried to avoid controversy.
6: It's done that in part by literally and figuratively putting a big gate around its fantasy kingdom to keep the
2: real world at bay.
6: Though that's been changing.
2: Starting about 10 years ago, there was a, a decision inside the company that in cartoons, they no longer needed to steer away so much from uh, same-sex relationships, for example. Um, you could show you know lesbian moms because their research showed the kids didn't care and most of the audience approved of same-sex relationships. And so in making that shift, in trying to uh, stay relevant and depict the world as it is, in the fantasy, in cartoons, Disney stepped into this cultural debate that has sort of roiled the brand and is is continuing to threaten it.
6: That's on full display today in Florida, where Disney may be the state's biggest employer, but it's locked in a battle with the Republican governor, Ron DeSantis.
1: You know,
2: we signed the the Parents' Rights in Education bill. It's interesting when, like, A Disney-owned ABC...
6: All started with a bill signed into law last year limiting classroom teaching about sexual orientation and gender identity.
2: Disney went against the governor of Florida and said, you know, this law that critics have called Don't Say Gay is wrong and we're going to work to uh, have it appealed. The governor flipped out, (laughs) uh, to use the official term,
1: my job is not to kowtow to some woke corporation in Burbank, California.
2: And went about punishing the company very overtly. It wasn't subtle. He's, he, was, he was quite direct about it. In taking away this sort of special government structure that has allowed Disney to uh, control the growth and government operations at Disney World.
6: Disney has fought back, launching its own free speech lawsuit against the state. But no matter what happens in the courts, the company's image as a fantasy land is wearing thin, which is actually nothing new, if you ask Jody Eichler Levine.
5: Disney's always been enmeshed in politics and the real world. So, for example, going all the way back to the Three Little Pigs cartoon contained an anti Semitic peddler stereotype. Um, various groups objected. As early as the 1940s, animators went in and redid the scene to change it, right, due to objectives to the stereotype. Disney
6: has curated its own version of the company's history for its 100th anniversary in an exhibition that's traveled across the United States and Canada. They did not, however, respond to an interview request. However you see the company's recent history, Brooks Barnes is clear on the upshot.
2: The Disney brand is at a more precarious place than it has been certainly in memory, maybe ever.
6: To look at what Disney's done as a corporation in the 21st century, its plan for continued dominance of the global imagination would appear to come down to this. Gobble up as many other entertainment companies and their intellectual property as possible.
8: Uh, you know, they, they picked up Pixar in 2006, and then they picked up uh, Marvel, I think, in 2010. Uh, and then Star Wars, or Lucasfilm, or Arts they picked up, uh, which contained Star Wars. And then, you know, they just, and then they got Fox. You know, they've, they've, they've acquired so much, they've become almost, like, too big. Uh, and I don't think they really have the, the kind of direction that they used to.
6: Film critic Barry Levitt does have an idea for how Disney can find its North Star again, though. And it's not by focusing exclusively on its heroes, like Mickey Mouse. Instead, he says, look to the villains.
8: These great, colorful, flamboyant, terrifying um, villains that like seep into your mind and you think about so much more than you think about, you know, you think about Captain Hook more than Peter Pan. You think about Ursula more than you think about Ariel.
4: Before the sun sets on her 16th birthday, She shall prick her finger on the spindle of a spinning wheel and die. Oh no!
8: You know, you certainly think about Maleficent uh, in Sleeping Beauty more than you do the titular character who I think has 14 lines. Um, You know, it's it's these villains that really define who Disney is and, and no studio has ever made villains as consistently interesting.
6: But those signature Disney villains have been missing in action.
8: If you look at the last... Ten movies that Disney have made, uh, which are Strange World, Encanto, Ryan the Last Dragon, Frozen Two, Ralph Breaks the Internet, Moana, Zootopia, Big Hero Six, Frozen, Wreck It Ralph. Unless you're like an obsessive and know those films inside and out, you probably couldn't name more than one, if even one, villain from any of those. Uh, most of them don't have villains. They've kind of gone in a new direction of uh, the environment is the villain or, or society is the villain.
6: And it's not just the villains that he and legions of other Disney fans are missing. It's that where there's a great villain, there tends to be a great story.
8: When you have a villain, you have something to root against. And you have someone to root for because they're trying to fight the villain. And, and, you know, you want to stop whatever the villain is doing.
6: And that's been Disney's key way to hold on to our imaginations for a century. Even without the technological innovations, the theme parks or the merchandising, the key to the past and future is story, as Jody Eichler Levine sums it up.
5: Disney matters because stories matter.
6: It's something the company has lost sight of a few times in its first century, according to Brooks Barnes.
2: When it's lost its way and it has a couple times, that has really been when it a new generation of of leaders have come in and shifted the focus more to. Growth at any cost, and a financial performance and push to the side storytelling.
6: Great stories: stories that mix light and dark, that delight as well as scare, are the company's foundation. Here's Barry Levitt.
8: Bambi," which was their fifth movie, you know, has one of the most devastating deaths. Imaginable, Um, and Dumbo gets very dark as well. You kind of see in that a willingness to take risks that you don't see now. There's a real sense of safety.
6: Which brings us to Wish.
7: Last night, I made a wish on a star, and the star answered.
6: Disney's Flagpole 100th Anniversary animated film released this fall with nods to many of its classics sprinkled throughout the film. Alas, it's been met with less than stellar reviews. According to several critics, the storytelling is fumbled, and its villain, the first potentially formidable one in years, falls flat. But there's always the next movie, right? Here's Jody Eichler-Levine.
5: It's a curious moment. I wouldn't be completely optimistic about the future of Disney, but I think they're going to adapt. They've adapted to every kind of technological change in storytelling that's come along. Right. Going from the first sound cartoons to streaming. And now they're investigating, you know, various kinds of artificial intelligence and machine learning in the next generation of, of robots in the parks, of audio animatronics in the parks.
6: As she says, it's a curious moment. In a lot of ways, the world we live in is Disney's own creation. But that world keeps changing fast and Disney needs to fight to defend the castle it's built. It does have one more secret weapon, though. Here's Brooks Barnes.
2: Yeah, I mean, for the, there are people who go to the Disney world and literally start crying when they see Cinderella's castle, and I'm talking about adults. <laughs> you know, weeping with joy.
6: Disney's grip on our imagination is being tested at 100, but for generations of fans like Marlene Morris, Mickey and company still have a firm hold On their hearts.
7: It is indeed for me the happiest place in the world. And I truly hope that my own children will continue to carry the love of Disney to the next generation. And maybe I'll be there as a grandma someday, but not for quite a few years.
3: (laughs) That documentary was made by Pete Minton, who's a producer here on the Sunday magazine. there may be no one who adores animals as much as Susan Orlean. For much of her life she's been surrounded by them and written about them as well. Long before she was a staff writer for The New Yorker and best-selling author of books like The Orchid Thief, Susan was a kid writing novels about nearsighted pigeons and animals have accompanied her ever since. From her time growing up in the suburbs and years spent in Manhattan and Los Angeles to living on a farm in upstate New York replete with chickens, cattle and, yeah, her human family too. Susan's collected essays and articles that she's penned over the years that cast the furry, feathery and fishy as neighbours, friends, bosses and colleagues. And she's put them all together in a book called On Animals. We spoke about it in October 2021. Okay, Susan, we're going to start with a little rapid fire to see where you stand in the animal kingdom. Cats or dogs?
9: Oh, no, I knew you were going to say that. And as an owner of, a, of two dogs and a cat, I feel like I would be ripped to shreds by whatever contingent I don't choose. But if I were to have to say, I'm probably more of a dog person. Cat is now... The cat, cat is, is sharpening now like, putting his her claws,
3: claws out, sharpening his claws. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> right. All right. That's fair. That's a hard one for a lot of people to actually have to choose, uh, between them. Have you ever met a donkey
9: you didn't like? Absolutely not. To me, these are the most endearing animals ever created. And I defy anyone to not be smitten immediately by a creature with ears twice as long as their face. Cutest animal? Ooh, um, fennec fox. A what fox? They're called fennec foxes, and they're tiny red foxes, and they happen to have very large ears. (laughs) Speaking of large ears... What's your favorite all round creature? Um, my son... I would Good have answer. to say. Good answer. Yeah, thank you. In case my son is listening, that was a very, <laughs> very politic answer. Son's top on the list. That's the way it's yeah. supposed to be. I have a couple yeah. more. Most underrated animal. Uh, mules, for sure. Um, and I loved writing about mules. You know, people don't think about mules, they're pretty remarkable animals. All right. Last one. I don't know if you're going to have an answer to this one. An animal you never warmed to. Oh, well, there's no mammal that I don't like. I mean, I wouldn't say that I'm particularly fond of rats, but I had a mouse as a pet when I was a kid, and I love mice. I would say the animals I have trouble feeling affectionate toward are in the insect kingdom more than the animal kingdom per se, and I'm scared of certain animals like rattlesnakes, but mammals, I'm pretty down with mammals. I kind of love them.
3: Okay, this is interesting that you say, look, I have a fear of some kind of animals, i.e. a rattlesnake, because you describe yourself as always being a little, quote, animalish, but that's not a, a Susan Orleans family
9: trait. Your mom was scared of dogs and didn't want the mess. That's true. In fact, it's funny, you know, you think of people who grew up with two dogs and two cats and a Gila monster and the entire array of pets. That wasn't the way I grew up. And we didn't get a dog until I was 13. So I didn't grow up in that kind of animalish household. And yet, I just was always drawn to animals. And I'm always amazed because I do meet people who just say, oh, you know, I'm just not not into animals. And I'm always surprised because certainly in the world at large, the number of people who have pets is epic. It's just enormous. And it would suggest that most people on the globe... Do have some affection for animals, but there are people who don't love animals for sure. Yeah, I was going to
3: ask you about that. Like, how profound do you see that line between we who are
9: animalish and those who are like animals? Meh. You know, it's really interesting because I find it puzzling. I mean, I'm able to roll with just about anybody's difference in taste than mine. But in a way, it feels like you're expressing a lack of interest in in the natural world. And that, I find, is the big breaking point. I can see someone saying, I don't want to have a dog or a cat because it's a lot of work, because it is a lot of work. But a kind of profound lack of interest in animals seems to me probably indicating a certain lack of interest in nature in general and that is a profound difference. And so that brings us to Keiko. Don't
3: forget me, okay? Don't forget you. One of the essays in your collection is about this whale that started Free Willy, born wild, lived in captivity for a long time, had a stint here in Canada. And Susan, as you know, people loved, loved Keiko. The former a former trainer even carried around a photo of the whale in her wallet, but didn't have a photo of her own kids in her wallet. <laughs> no, I know.
9: <laughs> I love that so much. Her kids are now probably furious now that they know that. But come on, I believe in you, Willie. You can do it. You can be free. Come on. You can jump it.
3: But what, why do you think humans crave that animal companionship? It, And even, like, we didn't have Keiko in our lives except for
9: through a movie. But if we use Keiko as an example, it just hit us so deep. It's fascinating to me. On some level, I think it's inexplicable. I really think that the foundation of this feeling is something purely wired into us. It's an intuitive yearning to connect with other living things. We feel, we project that we understand some of their impulses, and we do understand, you know, maternal instincts and protective instincts. Animals and humans share those, a, a whole range of behaviors that we really do have in common, and yet Their strangeness is so profound. The fact that we can never communicate with them is, I think, keeps the desire to connect with them in a state of unrequited questing. You know, to to feel that you've communicated with an animal is a pretty overwhelming sensation. It's like you've crossed the barrier between... Mm our species and their species. And, you know, I do think that we we find in them something greater than the pettiness that human existence can sometimes include. You know, there's something that goes beyond. Even with something like your dog, who, I mean, the other day my husband tripped and fell on our steps, and our puppy, who is very wild and seems pretty narcissistic at this point in his life, saw him fall and came running over to comfort him. And this wasn't our imagination. I mean, he clearly sensed that my husband was in distress, ran over, and began licking him. And, you know, there's this feeling of, oh, my God, this animal that we can't talk to has sensed distress and responded to it. And it's so stirring, don't you think? I mean, it's this feeling that it goes beyond language. It goes beyond anything that we can truly understand. It's just something primal and it's kind of wonderful.
3: And you say that animals are, quote, an ideal foil for examining the human condition.
9: To me, they they really are. And that's why going into these stories was always such a delight to me. Ultimately, these are all stories about people as much as they are about animals. And seeing the way that we, it's almost like being against some sort of neutral background, there, there's a way that human behavior is etched so crisply in relation to animals, and there is some immutable truth about that. I mean, I found it very interesting, if you remember the movie Blade Runner, one of the uh, ways that you could tell a human from a replicant is that humans reacted to the sign of an animal being harmed and replicants didn't it was as if they forgot to program in that behavior but we this is a human impulse people generally react emotionally to an animal being hurt and mm. so it's it's part of being human is responding to animals And you see human behavior in a way that's um, very clear when it comes to seeing people in their relationship to animals. Thus far in our
3: conversation, people might um, assume two things. One, wow, does Susan Orlean love animals? They would be right about that. But it is not just dogs and cats and domestic animals that you've written about, Susan Orlean, or even tended to. You are famously a chicken person. A lot of people now have chickens as pets, right, in their urban backyards. It's kind of all the rage. How did we urban dwellers come to want chickens in our homes, or or, (laughs) I suppose in our backyards at least?
9: Well, it's such an interesting um, social evolution. Back 100 years ago, when most people lived in a more agrarian setting. It was such a common animal to have that nobody even thought about it. As people moved to suburban settings and urban settings, nobody wanted a chicken. I remember when I told my parents that I was getting chickens and I think they felt that their entire upward trajectory, socially and economically, had been ruined. (laughs) That I was returning to the, I mean, that everything that they had strived for in terms of becoming urban people with white collar jobs had suddenly been turned upside down because their daughter, their college educated daughter was suddenly saying, mom, dad, I'm so excited. I got chickens and they never understood it. Hmm. And, you know, because to me, well, and to many of us, the idea of raising livestock was this novelty that really was outside the range of our experience. Um, You know, most people now live in either urban or suburban settings. I mean, the demographic has moved inexorably in that direction for the last 50 years. So, Most people didn't live with a chicken in the backyard. And like making your own bread, there became a fascination with, wow, what would it be like to raise your own food? It was a necessity to raise your own chickens 100 years ago if you wanted eggs. It's no longer a necessity, but it became a a curiosity And there's something really rewarding about it that I think those of us who didn't grow up with it as a necessity began seeing it as this kind of luxury almost to have Mm. fresh. Can you imagine fresh eggs that you go, you know, take out of the coop in the morning that that felt luxurious in a way? Let me ask you, like, how did you even acquire the chickens? I did not know how you get chickens. I, mean, which I, I shows don't know that, either. I,
3: I would go to I would acquire one at a farm. I imagine.
9: Well, I would stop every now and again at my neighbor. This was when I my husband and I had moved to our farm full time, and I thought, well, I really want chickens. How do you get chickens? And you know, talk about revealing yourself to be an utter city slicker. I mean, I was like, <laughs> you know, it was almost embarrassing. And I, I asked a few neighbors who had chickens if they had any that I could buy, and they were baffled. And it was like, no, we these are our chickens. We don't want. Us. I mean, it'd be a little like showing up at someone's house and asking to buy their dog. And, you know, they were like, what? Then I found a chicken coop that I wanted to buy, and lo and behold, when I put it in my cart, this was, you know, I was buying it online, it offered the option of getting chickens with the coop. And, you know, talk about servicing (laughs) the new interest in chickens. I mean, it was (laughs) so funny, so I ordered the chicken chickens. You house. got you got
3: mail ordered chickens basically. Mail
9: or it was like a mail order bride, you know. I, I mean <laughs> and I thought this is the weirdest thing. I can't believe you can get chickens in the mail, but I did. They get delivered to the post office, and then the post office calls you and says, You have a large box that's making <laughs> a lot of noise. Please come pick it up. (laughs) It was so... I've never received anything more unusual in the mail. So you go to pick up the package. It's clucking. It it was making a racket. And I brought them home. And, I mean, it was really exciting. I released them from their box, you know, took the stamps off and opened the box and (laughs) put the chickens in their coop. And I had the most intense feeling of satisfaction. And the sense of, oh my God, I have livestock. And I'm sure anyone here who lives on a farm is now like rolling their eyes and thinking, oh my God, can you imagine? But for those of us who grew up in the rarefied urban world, it is wild. It's amazing. You, You feel the sense of incredible stewardship. Like I am taking care of these animals and these animals have a job to do, which is to lay eggs for me. And we're in this very special relationship. And it's just, Hmm. I I loved having them so much. I can't quite explain it. And first of all, they're, they're very pretty. They're an undervalued animal in terms of their attractiveness. They're very beautiful They're fun to watch. They're fun to be around. And I love taking care of them. I love the elemental nature of taking care of these creatures and then collecting eggs, which made me feel like a millionaire, that I had fresh eggs.
3: (laughs) There are a few stories in your book that show moments when humans thought we had evolved past needing animals or or directly relying on them, and then going back on that. So, as you say, you know, I'm thinking of those backyard chickens and and the role of mules. So here's the point where we get to talk about mules, your favorite animal. Yeah, uh, you know, I think most people know that mules are work animals um, that they've been used, you know, in in militaries around the world. But just give us a sense of how
9: I mean that's valuable enough, but how much more valuable and awesome mules are. Mules are amazing, and they're interesting. They're a man-made animal. Mules don't occur naturally. It's the breeding of a horse and a donkey. And it was done with the idea that you would get the strength and sturdiness of a donkey and the trainability and agility of a horse, and it actually turned out to be really a good mix. And these animals are... Among the sturdiest, smartest, most durable creatures on earth, they were used widely in the military, and in World War I, hundreds of thousands of mules were used because they can carry an astonishing amount of weight. So they were remarkably useful as pack animals pulling machine guns, you know, mainly carrying munitions, food, supplies. And they're smart, and they can take care of themselves better than a horse can. Over time, as the military became more mechanized, animals were really marginalized and used less and less until, and this is certainly I'm talking about the U.S. military, though my guess is that the Canadian military probably has some parallels here. As warfare moved into areas where the roads were very poor, the terrain was really mountainous, sometimes the most sophisticated, uh, mechanized vehicle, the Bradley tank or whatever is the absolute apex of you know modern warfare, couldn't manage. I mean, you're talking about a little narrow trail in the Hindu Kush in Afghanistan. You can't take a huge tank, but you can take a mule. There's something sort of wonderful about... And maybe this is because I love animals, but I like the fact that there are certain things animals just do better than technology. Hmm. Dogs can smell better. Their sense of smell is more acute than any technology that we've ever developed. I mean, that's why we use bomb-sniffing dogs, cadaver dogs, and we don't use machinery. I, I love the fact that there is still something fundamental and emotionally gratifying about interacting with an animal, whether it's an animal that's doing a job for you or it's just your pet, we will never replace that with some mechanized form of that. And thank goodness that we still react to flesh and blood in a different way than we'll ever react to a microchip.
3: Your love for animals bleeds through the radio. Um it's been such a delight and informative conversation with you Susan Orlean. Thanks for mu- so much for making time for us. I am so delighted. It was my pleasure. Susan Orlean is a staff writer for The New Yorker. I spoke with her back in October of 2021. I'm Pia Chatapatai and you are listening to the Sunday Magazine podcast. Have you ever watched a cat skitter through some seemingly invisible obstacle course that happens to be your living room and wondered, what is happening in their world? Or maybe you've questioned what exactly it is that your dog gets out of sniffing everything. Ed Yong, may have some answers for you. The Pulitzer Prize-winning science journalist immersed himself in the lives of other creatures to find out what the world is like through their eyes or whiskers or flippers. The result is his book called An Immense World, How Animal Senses Reveal the Hidden Realms Around Us. I spoke with Ed Yong about it in June of last year. You ask us as readers to picture a hypothetical room full of animals, to set up a framework to think about animal senses. So maybe in this room, there's, I don't know, an elephant, a mouse, a robin, they're all sharing the same space. How are these creatures interacting with one another? Or are they at all?
1: in this hypothetical room, you've got all these animals, and, and my, the, the point of this um, extended uh, imaginative exercise is to get people to understand that you could be inhabiting the same physical space as another creature, but experiencing that reality in a completely different way. So, you know, the elephant in that room will um, hear uh, low-frequency sounds that we can't hear. If there's a mouse in the room, it will hear high-frequency sounds that neither we or the elephant can hear. Um, if there's a rattlesnake in it, it can sense the body heat of the mouse that it's trying to hunt in a way that um, the human or the elephant can't. Uh, the robin that's hypothetically in the room can sense the magnetic field of the earth and, and work out where um, where it needs to fly if it wants to migrate um, in a way that you know, the other inhabitants can't. So the, these animals um, could be exactly in the same physical space, but have radically different experiences of that space. Um, That that gets at this concept of the umwelt, the sensory bubble that all creatures have, the tiny sliver of reality that they experience and that is different from what other creatures experience. But I think it also... sort of gears people up for one of the most important concepts in the book, which is that, you know, our imaginations are, are one of our greatest assets here. Science can get us somewhat, some way towards understanding what these sensory bubbles are like, but there's always going to be um, a bit of imaginative work that we need to do to try and um, get inside the heads of other creatures.
3: And yet I think, you know, uh, most of us anthropomorphize animals, right? We put our own human thinking and experience what their lives would be like and so many experts that you spoke with say don't do that they've discouraged this way of thinking
1: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah and often when we think of um anthropomorphism we think about um cognition we we think about how we assume that animals are thinking or feeling you know having the same emotional responses that that we do but i think that um we also anthropomorphize them um In in the sensory worlds, we assume that they um, see and hear and smell the same kinds of things that we do, and we are wrong in thinking that. Uh, And, you know, because we do that, we often... um, really misinterpret um, their lies. So, you know, I'll just give you a few examples. Um, There was this uh, great video that went um, viral on TikTok a while back with an Argus pheasant. So think like a a kind of fancy peacockish bird where the male's doing this incredible display and the female's walking past him, seemingly ignoring him. And, you know, the joke was he's doing everything he can. Uh, She doesn't care, right? But bird's eyes face to the sides and their visual fields are lateral so they can see what's happening to the side of them and they're looking at directly at objects that are the side of them so this you know this female bird is paying very close attention to the displaying male even though through our our eyes it looks like she's ignoring him because our eyes face forward. So we think that the position of the head shows where you're paying attention to. Um, You know, similarly, like, a cow might look like it's not paying attention to anything at all, but a cow has that similar kind of wraparound vision. You know, it can see you walking from the side without having to turn its head. Like, this act of turning its head is not the same as paying attention for a lot of other animals. Hmm.
3: Okay, I want to stick with eyesight because something that really blew our minds when we were reading your book was the eyesight of bees. Um, And you write that, again, like we as humans put so much emphasis on vision when we talk about or think about animal senses. And tell our listeners, how do bees and flowers interact?
1: (laughs) Right. So this is one of my favourite things too, right. So if you look at um, all the flowers in the world, which are very colourful, and you ask, what kind of eye is best at discriminating between these colours? What you get is an eye that is almost identical to what a bee has. It has three kinds of, um, you know, colour-sensitive cells um, that in our eyes are sensitive to red, green, and blue, uh, mostly, and in a bee's eyes are sensitive to blue, green, and and ultraviolet. Um, So you might think that the bee's eye has evolved to see the colours on flowers because they go to flowers to collect pollen and so on. But actually, that's exactly the opposite um, because the bee eye came first and the flowers evolved on the scene much later. So it's actually that the colours of flowers have evolved to ideally tickle the eyes of bees. Um and I think that's wonderful because it's, it's counterintuitive, but it also shows that the senses are not like what we often think of them as, uh, as these like passive intake valves, you know, that they, they're just like these portals that allow light and sound and other stimuli to enter our, our bodies. They also actively shape the world around us. Um, you know, in viewing nature's paintings, eyes also define nature's palettes. Hmm.
3: All right. Let's blow our listeners' minds a bit more and talk about dogs. You are a dog owner, Ed. I know that. I'm a cat person, Ed. I'm just going to throw that out there. (laughs) But for you dog people, um, I know you and you think you know your dogs pretty well. Uh, You know what they like and dislike. You know what they're saying to you, quote unquote, saying to you uh, when you take them out for a walk. But Ed, here's where you're going to challenge that (laughs) narrative. You say our human lens clouds what dogs really want on those strolls. So how so?
1: Right. I think dogs exist in a world that is dominated by smell. It is, you know, the the primary part of their umwelt, their sensory world. And you can see that, right? Like I think um dogs want to sniff. They explore with their noses. Um whenever I take my dog uh whose name is Typo, he's a corgi. Um <laughs> Amazing. And, thank you uh when we go he's typography in for when he's bad um but so when we go on walks um he sniffs intensely um he explores with his nose and the information that he gets from his nose is very different to what i can get with my eyes um so you know typo can sense um when the smells of other dogs that have walked past in our neighborhood um you know he has dogs that he knows very well uh when because we take him to our local dog park all the time I I'm pretty sure he knows exactly where those dogs live around our neighbourhood, and I don't because I can't. I can't see any trace of that. Um, you know, we'll be walking along a street, and he'll grind to a halt and investigate this super interesting patch of pavement, which looks completely nondescript to my eyes, but there are you know blazing beacons of scent to his nose. And I think that's it's really important to to understand that because I think a lot of dog owners deprive their dogs of a chance to use what is actually their primary sense. They'll pull them away from the things they're smelling because to them, a walk is, um, you know, about getting from point A to point B or it's about exercise. I mean, it can be those things, but it's also a chance for a dog to use, um, you know, the, 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 the organ that it most uses to interact with the world.
3: You're right. I'm just thinking about like when you see people out walk their door, there was yanking the leash or telling it to come back rather than go scurry about and do what, as you say, dogs do very well and need to do.
1: Yeah, um, and you know, I think it's sad. Like I've seen, um, you know, as I said, we go to the dog park a lot. I've seen dog owners chastise their dogs for sniffing each other, for sniffing another dog's groin, and that's um, you know where a lot of scent is produced. It's how dogs interact socially. Um, you know, a, a dog um, sniffing another dog's genitals is just like me looking at another person in the face. To when we make social contact. And similarly, um, you know, when when we go on walks and typo sniffing like patches of pee or um, you know just just like bits where other like places where other dogs have been, to me that's actually very similar to me like scrolling on my Instagram feed on my phone. <laughs> you know, it's a, it's an intensely social thing. It's how he works out what the other dogs in the neighbourhood are up to.
3: All right, say you uh, and typo and I and. Just for kicks, let's say my cat, because I just want to tell you his name, which is Chairman Meow Smoky Catapati, which (laughs) I think is pretty good. Uh, But perhaps the four of us are out for a walk. We're going through a park, and we hear the bird song. And yeah, the chirps, chirping is distinct, of course. But you write at length about the umwelt of one bird in particular, which is the zebra finch. And so as we're enjoying our... hypothetical why we hear this tell, tell us more about it what it reveals about the bird song we hear uh, no matter what bird it is but compared to what the birds themselves hear
1: right so often I think when you hear bird song um you know you you know that it's it's really fast right it's not like uh, it's not easy to replicate um, and there's always a sense that is there something there that I'm missing and that the birds are getting? And the answer very much is yes. Think about the the, the rising and falling of the notes as like the, the skyline of a city. Um, you know, it's jagged. There's lots going on. Um, there's very fast changes going on um, at very short timescales. And that those changes um, are happening too fast uh, for a human ear to detect. Um, but a bird ear can absolutely hear them. They can detect these subtle changes um, in ways that humans cannot. And and here's the really wild thing that um, experiments with zebra finches have revealed. They care about those fast changes what's called the temporal fine structure much more than the the big obvious things like the the so-called syllables and notes that humans um care about. So if you do tiny alterations to bird song, like so small that a human couldn't detect them, the bird will go, "Whoa, that's that's weird. Something, <laughs> something's unusual about that song. But if you um, flip like the order of entire chunks of the song, if you take like syllables and displace them from, from one bit to the other, sometimes the birds can't tell. Or at least they might be able to tell, but they don't care. Hmm. And that's wild to me because it suggests a a few things. First, that that absolutely is stuff in bird songs that um, they can detect and that we cannot. But also that... We're just paying attention to different parts of those songs. You know, the the so called notes that we hear are super important to us. Like they're they're often the ways in which birders identify different birds. You know, we we like transliterate them into into um, words and syllables that we can express. But in for many bird species, that's actually not what they care about. At all, it just again speaks to this unwell concept that even with birdsong, even with something that you know we can absolutely hear uh, and we think we we appreciate we do that in a completely different way than the animals themselves are doing.
3: All right, let's um, continue on our walk. We've got our animals and we're right. heading to the water, Ed. Um, We've picked up
1: some birds now. We've got we a whole troop bro- going on. <laughs> <laughs> we're in a Pixar movie.
3: <laughs> yes, they all talk to us in, right, in English. Right. Yeah.
1: <laughs> they all help us out when we get into scrapes.
3: All right, I, I, this sounds fun to me. You know, we said yep. use our imagination. So let's continue yep. doing that. Okay. okay, we go down to, uh, I don't know, the lake uh, or the local pond where there's fish and then we stand there and you say to me and i'm again a a little gobsmacked by what you're about to say to me you say pia do you know that in science uh, there's a very controversial question in the animal research community and i say ed well what is it And the question you say that really is divisive is do fish feel pain Mm -hmm. um why is this such a division in the science community
1: there have been changes over the decades over our, about our understanding um, of whether other animals can feel pain or not. Um, you know, if you skip back a few centuries, I think there was this feeling that other, uh, other animals are so different from us and then of course they don't experience um, things that are emotionally complicated like pain in the same way. And I think that's given way to a, a more nuanced understanding that they actually very much do. But like that is the case for like other mammals, like say rats and mice, monkeys but um fish are on the sort of cusp of that change there's still a lot of debate uh, about whether they feel pain in the same way now um it helps to make a distinction here between like two, two different kinds of things. Like the, one is what um, scientists call nociception, which is the ability to detect harmful stimulus. So like a burn or, or a pinch or some other kind of injury. They absolutely have that. What pain is, is a little distinct. Pain is the suffering that goes along with that. It is the, the negative emotional feeling of of the injury itself, you know, I, I touch a burning stove. Um, my arm will recoil from the the nociceptive feeling before my brain registers the pain, the the, the suffering that goes along with it. So there are some people who, is, who who suggest that fish feel the former and not the latter. I do think, I would argue in the book that um, there have been a lot of experiments showing that um, that fish do feel something like pain. Um, you know, they show evidence of emotional distress. They'll avoid areas that they had encountered painful experiences. Um, You know, they they might not have, um, you know, hands where they can groom the site of the injury, but they will perform um, movements that are quite similar to that. There's also similar debates about, and I touch on this in the book, about um, crustaceans, like crabs. Um, There are debates about whether insects can do this. And I think at at the core of this um is that anthropomorphism uh, I- effect that we we talked about, like what does it mean for another animal to have a painful experience like can we look at their behaviors and infer something about their emotions? like how big a brain do you need to have that kind of subjective experience and these are actually very difficult questions to answer a- and pain kind of gets. At, at why this is difficult, but the same sorts of things apply to things like colour. Like, what kinds of colours do we see? It applies to things like smell. Like, what kind of emotional sensations do we get from um, from smelling an object? Um you know, I, I think that um, there's always this sort of tension between the detection of a stimulus and, and the, the, the conscious experience of that detection. And and the pain sort of gets at, at why that is.
3: Yeah. And I, I, you know, I just want to parse this out a little bit more because the pain that animals may or may not feel and what, what it does, it, it's not just controversial. There's a lot of ethical, you know, approaches to it. And, you know, people make life choices, frankly, of course. Um, sometimes based on that. So what questions do you think we should then be asking about pain other than whether
1: it exists at all? The question of whether animals feel pain or not is in it, obviously important for the reasons you described, but, but in some ways sort of boring right or too crude let's put it that way you know very few people ask like can this creature see or smell or not it's about the the types of things they do with that sense and how you know what what form that sense takes you could ask the same thing about pain which is a little weird because we're sort of used to thinking of pain as this like very obvious thing but other people other animals might experience it in very radically different ways so think about um a a squid and an octopus, um, two creatures that are closely related, but that experience pain in in very, very different ways. If you injure a squid, it's actually not very clear whether the squid knows which part of its body is injured. It will behave as if its entire body is injured. It will be more sensitive to touch on other parts of the body besides the point where it had the injury. Um, and maybe that's because for a squid it actually doesn't matter to know where the injury was it just matters to know i'm in a little bit of trouble now i need to be like hyper vigilant um its arms can't actually reach like a lot of Body parts. So there's there's sort of nothing a squid can do with that kind of information. If it experiences pain, it's in a very different way than what we get. An octopus is, is a little bit closer. An octopus has hypermobile arms, it can explore. It does have a sense like if it is injured in this bit, this is the bit that is feeling the pain. You know, if I was a squid, if I stopped my toe, I would feel sensitive to touch elsewhere. If it was an octopus, it would do that, I would go, ah, my toe hurts. So again, you have very, very different ways of experiencing this sensation that we kind of think as being like primal and uniform across the world, and it actually isn't. So Ed, these unique worlds of animals that you write about um, have often
3: been deeply affected by humans and our behaviour. And um, i I'd like you to take us to Lake Victoria in East Africa as an example of that, where human impact flattened out the diversity in uh, light in those waters. At one point, there were more than 500 species of, I think it's a uh, cichlid. Is that how cichlid fish? Uh, I
1: say cichlid, cichlid. but what you, uh, you do, do what you like. I'll do cichlid because like it doesn't have, have an H in right. there.
3: 500 species of uh, cichlid fish in that lake. And, and that's not the case anymore. Why does it matter if there are fewer species of a similar fish that can be very commonly found?
1: There are many reasons why that diversity exists and light is one of them. Um, the gradients uh, of light in the lake create differences in the kinds of colours that the fish are best suited to seeing and that then shapes the patterns that the fish have on their bodies which they use to recognise each other. Again, you know, it's the same thing as with the bees and the flowers. The, the eyes of the animal shapes the form of that beauty takes on their bodies and because um, humans pumped the lake full of nutrients and flattened out those light gradients, they reduced to that diversity. It, it, the number of species collapsed. Now, there are many reasons, other reasons why that happened, but this is one of them. It's us changing the, the stimuli in the world in a way that made it hard for animals to have the same kind of sensory experiences that they, they evolved to have. Again, this is, speaks to our, our tendency to, to forget that animals experience the world in different ways than we do. You know, we, we don't think of light as a pollutant. We think of light as a good thing. We want more of it. We want to illuminate our way out of the dark, which is bad and dangerous. Um, but light at night is, is very much a pollutant for a lot of creatures. Last question
3: for you, Ed. You typo, me, my cat. We are back in this hypothetical room that we began in, which included um, the mouse, a mouse, uh, an elephant, uh, a robin. We're all in the sh- same space. And you said, look, we're all going to perceive this differently. But you and I are in this room this time. So two humans. What are we experiencing? In other words, what is our greatest sensory skill as human beings?
1: I think our greatest sensory skill is the ability to step into the umwelt, the sensory worlds of other creatures. And that, to my knowledge, is not something that other animals can do. Typo isn't wondering about my umwelt. Um, An elephant isn't thinking about what uh, an electric fish senses and electric fishes and pondering the relationships between bees and flowers we can do all of that. We have a lot of um, technology in our disposal that allows us to to get a, a sense of those other sensory worlds. We have the powers powers of our curiosity, our imagination. And that is a gift. I think it means that this act of considering other Umwelts is a profoundly and deeply human thing to do. We should do it, because if we don't, we risk messing up those other worlds, as we've already said, but we should also do it because it gives us something that is unique to us and that I think is truly splendid. I think it makes the world around us, including some of the most familiar and mundane aspects of it, feel newly wondrous and magnificent again.
3: This book is such an adventure, Ed, and it's just so great to wander and wonder. Um, thank you for it; it's it's um,
1: really beautiful. Thank you, I really appreciate that. That's exactly the the kind of reaction I was hoping to uh, to instill in readers. So I'm I'm really glad you had that experience with it.
3: Ed Yong is a science journalist and author of An Immense World. And with that, we have come to the end of another round of the Sunday Magazine podcast. Our producers are Levi Garber, Andrea Huang, Adam Kellick, Pete Mitten, and Arande Williams. We had additional help this week from audio technician Emily Kiravasio. Our executive producer is Brian Colton. I'm Pia Chattapad. I thank you so very much for lending us your ear here on the Sunday Magazine podcast.